Take your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis 49. Genesis 49, that would be page 42 if you're using the Bibles here. One of the most basic human struggles is that we don't like to be told what to do. Uh, obvious example is parenting, as of course we probably were all reminded, that's what causes those meltdowns sometimes. We don't like to be told what to do sometimes in the workplace or the classroom. We don't like to be told what to do sometimes by law enforcement, sometimes by the government. We chafe against those who tell us what we need to do or should do. But of course, as Christians, as we relate to God, we get over that, don't we? <laughs> or do we? <laughs> We, we have this, this, this human gene of sin that resists authority. How did Satan first tempt Adam and Eve? But by saying, has God said you should not eat of all the trees of the garden? Did God tell you what to do? Today we think about Jesus coming as king. And so we have to be thinking in king's terms, he has the right to tell us what to do. We see Jesus descended from the, from the lineage of David and from the kingly tribe of Judah specifically. Today, we're not so much focused on David himself. We'll save that more for next week, but rather the lineage of being in the, 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 the line or descendant of David through Judah. Jacob is the main character speaking in Genesis 49. And he's prophesying about all of his sons, but specifically about Judah that we will focus on. So uh, just to kind of get a picture of it, Jacob is seated, or probably laying on his bed, rather, on his deathbed. And his 12 sons are around him, and God gives him these prophetic words about the future of each of his 12 sons, who will be the 12 tribes of Israel. Verse 1, in fact, says, Jacob called his sons and said, gather around so I can tell you what will happen to you in the days to come. We know this is, is prophecy, and he gives this long speech. As we jump to the portion addressed to Judah in verse 8, be looking for terms like lion and scepter and ruler, kind of a lion king theme. Verse 8, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons, brothers, will bow down before you. You are a lion's cub, O Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares to rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from beneath his, between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs and the obedience of the nations is his. Um, let's get a little bit of a lineage or gene genealogical chart to kind of see where exactly we are and pick it up from really our study last week about Abraham in Genesis 12. Abraham lived about 2,000 years before Christ. His son Isaac and his grandson Jacob now is who we are studying about. And we will follow this today to Jacob's son Judah, 
one among the 12 sons of Judah, which will eventually become the person known we know as King David in 1000 BC. And that, fast forward then, is where Jesus descended from humanly. Our focus today really is more on Jacob and Judah here in Genesis 49. So did you notice the lion nature of Judah and his descendants? There's a phrase in the song that we sometimes sing, the lion of Judah. You ever know where that came from? It really comes first from here in Genesis, a reference to a lion king, scepter, ruler coming from Judah. But if we leap from the first book of the Bible to the last book, we find it spelled out specifically in this scene in heaven. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep, referring to Jesus now, see the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. This is looking back on the final victory that Christ will have eventually over all sin and evil. He has triumphed. He's the lion, Genesis, of the tribe of Judah, and he's the root of David, a term we'll come across actually next week. And exactly when we get to the New Testament and Matthew describes the human genealogy of Jesus, we find these names. The genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, as we saw last week, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah, and his brothers. So he's the guy who will be the king that descends from the line of kings. Back in Genesis 49 now, oops, Genesis 49 the lion traits. Verse 8, your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. This is somebody who has uh, just conquered someone in battle and you know, they, they've subdued them and their hand is on the neck. They can do to them as they please. Verse, verse 9, you return from the prey. So, so, so you, you've conquered someone. The lion crouches and lies down like a lioness. Who dares to rouse him? You don't poke a sleeping lion. And so when you get this picture of the lion, then he says, what I'm really talking about is, Judah, the the scepter, the king's rod or instrument that he used to declare judgment. He says, there'll always be a king from your line, Judah, your lineage, Judah, nor the ruler's staff from beneath or between his feet. Uh, I have the word staff. If you have a word like rule or lawgiver, it's the idea, the one way or another, of, of the king having the authority to make the rules. It's all about submission. It's all about authority as we think about Christ's coming. And it says, until he comes to whom it belongs. Now, I know that, if, depending on what Bible you're looking at, that's translated a little bit different. The Hebrew word Shiloh is in there, which is the word for peace. But the idea is probably a combination of he will have the authority to make peace because he demands obedience and he's in full control. The bottom line is he has absolute full authority. Hand on the neck, lion to be feared, scepter, lawgiver, demands obedience. When you think about the nature of Jesus in his kingship, 
though the, though the culture of our world does not acknowledge or follow Christ as king, we understand it. We get it. We should understand his authority. So we have to be thinking in terms of absolute submission to anything directed by Jesus Christ. We don't naturally think of kingly terms or a monarchy because our mindset is democracy. And I'm glad we are a democracy. I'm glad I I cherish the privilege of voting for our human rulers. But as followers of Christ, we need to make an adjustment because Jesus is absolute authority. Jesus does not watch polls or take uh, a feeling from some focus groups. He doesn't doesn't get a consensus on what is moral and right or what's a family. He is the absolute authority. Jesus doesn't kind of ask us, how do you want to do church? Because Jesus is the absolute authority. And we have to adjust to that. Hand on the neck, lion to be feared, scepter, lawgiver, demanded obedience. Because our temptation is that even though we would acknowledge his authority, we tend to have like our own private interpretations of what we think Jesus meant when he said something or what we think God meant. And we, we somehow feel that we have kind of the right to interpret, modify what God has said to fit what we want to do. I think we have to all admit we kind of do that. Now, I, I understand there's, we've talked often here about the difference between absolutes and convictions, and there are areas of conviction that indeed we need to develop to go, there's a principle, how do I apply it? But we just even need to be careful in our own heart that we do not argue with the Lion of Judah. If, if he is showing us something that he has for us to do, and it may be an area of conviction or something that he's a, through the Spirit, because we now have the Spirit in, inside of us as we read his word to develop our ability to make choices that will honor the king. So we can't resist. And if you find an area where you, you sense you're kind of defending poorly something that God has shown you more clearly, we need to learn obedience. And we don't find it by taking a poll of others who even claim the king's name. So he will be the king, the lion from the tribe of Judah. Turns me to Numbers, second Christmas prophecy to look at today. Numbers 24 or page 128. We step ahead in time, but step into another fascinating chapter in the history of Israel that is ultimately about Jesus Christ coming to earth. Now the scene is not 12 sons gathered around a deathbed, but rather we are privy to a conversation between two pagans who are trying to curse Israel. The two people that are in this conversation of Numbers 22, 23, and 24 are King Balak and a prophet, so to speak, Balaam. So one is Balak, the king, and Balaam, 
the prophet. He's not a prophet of God, though he has knowledge of God. And by the end of this, he really has a knowledge of God. And God actually speaks to him. But he's really got a background as a pagan or occultic type prophet. The, uh, the context of these chapters is that Moses, this is now about 1400 BC, so maybe four to 500 years after the time of Judah, uh, Jacob and Judah, Moses has brought the people out of Egypt. They've crossed the Red Sea, right? They're headed to the, the promised land of Canaan, fulfillment of the promises to Abraham. And along the way, they encounter various nations who, if they resist and don't let Israel pass through, Israel has totally wiped them out. And so the news gets to Moab, the king of Moab, and he is scared to death as he sees this arriving vast nation now called Israel. And so being a good pagan, King Balak thinks, well, I need to summon the gods. I need, I need to, I hear they have a god. I need to find somebody who can curse their god and curse this nation of Israel. And so he sends for Balaam from far in the east, hundreds of miles. We don't know exactly where in Mesopotamia he came from, but a long ways. And uh, he tries to hire, Balak tries to hire Balaam to come and curse Israel. You can just tell this is kind of going to be interesting because if you remember our study last week, God promised Abraham about his descendants that whoever blesses your descendants will be blessed. Whoever curses them will be cursed. So Balak, the king, is definitely poking the lion. So when Balak's messengers get to Balaam to tell him to come, he comes with an offer of money, of course. And Balaam says no because God actually did appear to him and said, don't go. And so Balaam sends the messengers of Balak back home, those hundreds of miles. And Balak doesn't like to hear no, so he sends them back again with a better offer. If he says no with this much money, I'll give him more money. That should work. And as they come, Balak again says no, but before they leave, God speaks to him again and says, actually, I want you to go this time. But, listen carefully, Balaam, say only what I tell you to say. So Balaam makes his way to Moab on a donkey, and that's when it gets interesting. Uh, on his way, riding the donkey, they pass between two walls, and God sends the angel of the Lord to stand, blocking the path of Balaam and his donkey. Only God only allows the donkey to see the angel. And so Balaam's on this donkey saying, come on, get going. I was raised with horses, and sometimes you've got to urge them on a little bit. And, and the donkey wouldn't go... And as he keeps beating his donkey, this is the interesting part, hold on to your minds here, this is new to you, the donkey talks to Balaam and says, why are you beating me? And there's a conversation between a donkey and Balaam. This is real history, by the way. This is not a fairy tale. This is not a metaphor. This really happened. Read chapters 22 and 23, and you will see that God enabled this to do. And so eventually, though, then God lets Balaam also see the angel of the Lord, and he understands, and then God just makes the points. So Balaam, remember what I told you? Only say what I tell you to say. And so Balaam gets the point. By the way, as you read that part, 
you will notice that Balaam doesn't even seem to be surprised the donkey's talking to him. And I think the reason is that when you have been operating in the occult, demons do strange things. Demons speak through people's voices. That's what demon possession is, whether it's today or back in the time of Jesus. Satan spoke through a snake. So I don't think Balaam actually, a pagan occultic prophet, okay, I got a demon speaking to me only this time. It wasn't a demon, was it? It was actually God himself speaking through this donkey. A one-time thing. Don't expect your dog to start talk to you. So in the final scene, chapter 24, uh, Balak the king and Balaam the prophet are, because he did make it all the way to, uh, to Moab, they're looking over this vast Israelite nation and Balak is again urging him, please curse this people. And Balaam says, I can only say what God tells me to say. And uh, he doesn't li- Balak doesn't like what he hears. Go to verse 8. God brought them, that's Israel, out of Egypt. They have the strength of a wild ox. They devour hostile nations and break their bones in pieces. With their arrows they pierce them. And like a lion they crouch and lie down, like a lioness who dares to rouse them. See the the theme from what Jacob told Judah? Or this one, what God told Abraham. Last part of verse 9. May those who bless you be blessed and those who curse you be cursed. So you can see what's going to happen. You're going to be treated, Balak, based on how you treat Israel. Uh, this, is, this is biblical, historical drama at its best as you, you see this tension. Verse 10, then Balak's anger burned against Balaam. He struck his hands together and said, I summoned you to curse my enemies, but you have blessed them these three times. That's the story of the previous chapters. And, and, and they make these sacrifices on these pagan altars. Now, verse 11, leave at once and go home. I said I would reward you handsomely, but the Lord has kept you from being rewarded. No, no paycheck for you. And verses 12 to 14, Balak's, Balaam says, I know, I told you the first time that I'm not coming here for money. I can only do what, what God tells me to do. And then there's one final parting prophecy that God gives to Balaam. The oracle of Balaam, verse 15. 16, the oracle of one who hears the words of God. A vision from the Almighty. Verse 17 is the one we want to focus on. I see him, but not now. There's a person in mind. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. So it's a, it's a future person. A star will come out of Jacob, the nation of Israel, that is. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. He will crush the foreheads of Moab, the skulls of all the sons of Sheth. Not exactly what... Balak wanted to hear. But this future person is described with two terms, a star and a scepter. This is a typical Hebrew poetic poetry. And you, you, the scepter clearly is referring to a king, as it did to Judah back in Genesis 49. And so if, if the scepter is a king, the star is likewise a king in trying to understand this. 
and he's going to crush his enemies. Is Jesus ever described as a star? Actually, Jesus says it himself in another heaven scene of Revelation 22. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and offspring of who? David. And the bright morning star seems to be referring to a fulfillment of Numbers 24. And then there's another Christmas connection that I think is, take, makes total sense. Do you know anything else about a king and a star? Uh, let's go to uh, Matthew 2, the star that the wise men saw. You can go there. I have, I have the key verses here. So Numbers 24, 17 says there will be a star who is a king. And then as we read of the coming of Christ, we read, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who is born king of the Jews? We have seen his star in the east. How did the wise men no, they should come. We aren't told all the details. But a good idea, a good suggestion is that they knew of this prophecy of Balaam. They live actually in the east. The, the general area where Balaam came from did somehow scrolls from the time of, of Balaam, it's 1,400 years before, survive so that these wise men would know. Wise men were, were scholars, they were astrologers, they were counselors to kings. They actually weren't kings, but they counseled kings. The song, We Three Kings, isn't where we get our doctrine, we go here. But um, they could have had those scrolls. It could be that some Hebrew scrolls of Hebrew scriptures made their way east over those centuries as Jews eventually migrated all different places. They would have been the scholarly type to investigate scrolls like this, or it could have simply been that God spoke to the wise men and said, go that way, I'll give you a star, follow it, there's a king of the Jews. So it could have been an app, just a simple, to God, uh, direct revelation as well. So we don't know exactly how this all worked, but God gave them a literal star. We have seen his star at its rising, or from the east, at the east, and uh, we've come. And so they, they travel to Herod, Evidently, in this journey, they didn't get to see the star the whole time because they arrive in Jerusalem, and they're, they're close. They're five miles from Bethlehem. They're close. But, so God evidently withheld them from seeing the star the whole time because he wanted them to have this conversation with Herod in Jerusalem. So if you jump to verses 9 and 10, after they had heard the, the king, Herod, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. So the same star appears, and in some way it, it, it levitates and, and, and directs them exactly to the very place that Jesus, uh, Joseph, and Mary are. So did they know this prophecy? It seems, whether they knew it or not, it seems to be clearly a fulfillment of that. So Balaam foretells 
this one, I see him, I behold him. He's a star, a king, a scepter, and he crushes people. It teaches us to take him seriously. We, we can really appreciate and adore the humility of Christ, and we're going to talk about that in the next prophecy. But we have to take Jesus seriously in his authority. One way, as we've just discussed, is that we must submit to his authority. The other is that we need to trust his authority over all the evil that bothers us. He has authority over us. He has authority over everything, and we need to trust him to judge evil completely when the time comes and the time is right. The Lion of Judah, the scepter holder, the lawgiver, rule maker, can handle the Nazis or the communists, the atheists, the terrorists, the isms of the world that oppose him with lies. Romans 16.20 says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under his feet. Do we believe that? I think, I think we believe it. Maybe the best measuring stick of whether we trust Jesus to judge all evil is how much we allow ourselves to worry about all the evil. Or do we trust? We trust him for eternal life in heaven. Do we trust him to do the right thing in bringing about peace on earth when it's time? Um, doesn't mean that trusting him doesn't mean that we won't suffer. Trusting him doesn't mean that that uh, the effects of Satan in our culture won't create mocking, persecution, and uh, squashing of truth with lies. That's what that's what Satan does. But it means that we trust that this baby, who is our savior, is also the king who crushes skulls and is the one who holds the keys to eternal life and eternal judgment. And we trust him, and we know that because God has exposed, revealed his entire plan from the beginning to the end, and we who have his word are supposed to be seeing these big, broad, the sweep of history that God controls and the and, and the prophecies of when Jesus would come, and today we can look back that Jesus did come, and we, we get it. And we take a big breath and trust him to take care of evil because God has spoken. He's spoken to, to, to Abraham. He spoke through Jacob. He spoke through Balaam. He even spoke through a donkey because God is communicating to us that we would trust him in his authority. Turn to Micah 5.2. A lion, a star, and a, a little town. Micah 5.2, page 758. One of the best known, and for some maybe the only, only verse you've ever heard of in uh, this little prophetic book called Micah, towards the end of the Old Testament. Micah 5, 2, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me, 
one who will be ruler over Israel, king, whose origins are from old, from ancient times or everlasting, some of you have. So Micah is prophesying of an eternal king who will come from Bethlehem, which is David's hometown. The line of David, Judah to David. We're actually in Micah in 700 BC, so after the time of Judah, of David. But every, every Jew who heard the words of Micah knew and identified Bethlehem as David's hometown. And so this prophecy is describing Christ coming at that place in Bethlehem. Just to, uh, again, kind of get a, give us the big, broad sweep, let's think about how the prophecies of Christ here have narrowed. We saw the prophecy to Abraham, so God's going to bless all the world through Jesus. That was our study last week. And we find out that the way he's going to bless the world through Jesus is through the family of Abraham. And, and so Abraham starts the nation. So we know that this, this one who will bless spiritually forever, everyone, comes from the nation of Israel. And then in Genesis, we have seen that he comes from Jacob, the grandson of Abraham, and the great-grandson Judah, specifically, of the tribe. So that will be the kingly tribe. The scepter will not depart from Judah. And now it's narrowed down to a specific place on the map. It's Bethlehem in the area that was allotted to Judah. So it's, he's narrowing it down, and we know now that the, the, the king, eternal, the baby who's a savior, is going to come from a specific little town called Bethlehem. And of course, we know that to be the birthplace of David, 1 Samuel 16, 1. What's going on in uh, Israel around the time of Micah? So it's 700 BC. <clears throat> Micah the prophet is serving God in the southern portion of uh, Israel. By this time, the northern ten tribes of Israel, you may recall if you've read the Old Testament that there's a division that came to the northern ten tribes of Israel, have already been judged by God with captivity by the Assyrians. And they displace the majority of them, and uh, they're kind of gone out of the picture nationally. What remains is just the southern two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, but Benjamin kind of gets uh, absorbed into Judah, so that southern area is simply called Judah. And, and Micah is called to prophesy to Judah. And basically, the message of Micah is that God is saying, Micah, tell the people that just as the Assyrians came and took the, their, 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 the northern tribes away, Judah is also in serious spiritual trouble. And the same thing could happen, which in fact, hundred and some years later, the Babylonians came and did the same thing in God's judgment to them. In fact, as I think of the prophecy of Micah to Judah, it kind of reminds me of, or maybe it just makes me think of, of maybe the way God sees America about right now. Because at this point in Israel's history in 700 B.C., uh, there were some still good things going on. There, uh, Micah prophesied during a couple of kings, but one of them was Hezekiah, a godly king. And there were, there, were, there were a lot of godly people, sincere worshipers, and yet 
it was getting worse and worse spiritually to where God had to judge. And I, I wonder sometimes if that's how God sees uh, our country uh, today. A lot of good things happening spiritually uh, in God's plan, and yet how watered down is his word, how watered down is his church. How many Christians can God count on to have wholehearted obedience, humble obedience, in fact, humility seems to be a theme in Micah. If, if this is the best-known verse, go, go ahead to chapter 6, verse 8 in Micah. Probably the other best-known verse in Micah. On the theme of humility, He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That's what he was pleading with Judah. Walk humbly with your God. That's what, what, what he pleads with us. And, and it's interesting that Jesus himself, the king, right? The king who crushes skulls, is the one who came in humility. Chapter 5, verse 2. Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Bethlehem, the, the name of the town, is actually a, a Hebrew phrase, house of bread, indicating it's, it's located in a location where you can, you can raise grain really well. It's good fertile soil. The old name was Ephrathah. That's why they're both mentioned. You find that in Genesis. But Ephrathah means fruitful. So you, you get the idea this is a good place to, to farm. Though you are small among the clans. So uh, the clans, or you may have the term thousands. It's a, it's a Hebrew term for a great big number. Kind of like you say, I've told you that a million times, right? We didn't not a literal thing, but I told you that many times. So he's saying there's, there's these many, many little villages and, and bergs in, 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 in Judah, but you're the small one, and I chose you, Bethlehem, and that's where I'm going to send the ruler. Out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel. And at that point, you could, you could read, read that and go, oh, yeah, that... I would imagine even that in Micah's day they go, yeah, I know, Bethlehem, that's where David came from. He was the ruler of Israel. But the verse doesn't stop there, does it? Born in Bethlehem, that would, that would fit David, but what about the last part? Whose origins are from old. And from ancient times or everlasting. That's a completely different picture. So keep that in mind and then keep reading about the nature of this baby born who is somehow eternal. Verse 3, therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time comes when she who's in labor gives birth, saying there's going to be a a dark uh, time of rejection, the captivity of Babylon probably, and even the long gap between then and now. We talked last week about how Israel is now a nation as of 1948. Verse 4 jumps clear to the future about how this baby born is going to be the king. He will stand and shepherd, or using the shepherd picture actually, he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be their peace. Has that happened? Nope, there's not peace on earth yet. Yet. But Jesus, the Messiah, will bring peace. And this takes us a little bit more to our study next week of that millennial age, that future age 
where he will be king and there will be peace on earth. And what the angels said to the shepherds that day, peace on earth, goodwill toward men, will really happen on earth. But as we speak, Ethiopia and Sudan are at war and Russia is threatening to invade Ukraine. Iran always threatens to destroy Israel. North Korea always threatens to destroy us. There is no peace on earth, but there will be because we know the king. This little seemingly obscure prophecy would take front and center stage when the wise men came. Going back to Matthew, when the wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, they asked a geographical question. Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? And when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him, because if the king's not happy, no one's happy. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. You guys know this stuff, right? In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written, quoting our passage, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. So the, 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 the scribes refer to this passage. The scribes knew that Jesus, or the Messiah, their future Messiah king would come from Bethlehem. In fact, everybody in Israel seemed to have knowledge of this. If you were at all biblically literate in first century uh, Jerusalem, you knew the Messiah was to come from Bethlehem. One time during the ministry of Jesus, he was at a feast in Jerusalem, and people who had heard about his miracles or seen his miracles were arguing about who he was. Some of the people said, surely this man is the prophet, a reference to uh, something Moses had said, and, and others said he's the Messiah. Still others asked, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not Scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? And they are right about that. But they were wrong because they didn't know that Jesus actually was born in Bethlehem. They only knew him as the Nazarene, kind of disparagingly. They knew that, as we know, that he, Joseph and Mary and Jesus lived in Nazareth, 90 miles north, but he was actually born just five miles south of this discussion in Jerusalem in the city of Beth, little town of Bethlehem. Going back to verse 2, though, the, the, uh, as Micah gave this prophecy, the, the part that must have boggled his own mind was how could somebody born in Bethlehem have origins from old, from everlasting? So he comes forth, that's a, that's a human being born who's going to be the ruler, that makes sense. But his origins are, or his beginnings are actually eternal. How can, how can you be born in Bethlehem but actually originate way before that? Exactly. And that is the nature of the incarnation. The fact that God became man in the person of Jesus. So Jesus the baby was born of a woman 
biologically in time, space, in Bethlehem, but his real nature, his real existence is eternal, eternal. I have a hard time grasping that, but that is the nature of both the Father and the Son. Moses, who wrote this particular psalm, said, Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world, in other words, before creation, before you created everything, anything, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So you didn't start ever. That's a hard one. We can't picture something that has never begun, but the very nature that there is something means that there was something before that something came to be. Somebody caused everything that is. In fact, that's who God is, and that's who Jesus is, because Jesus is God. A few weeks back, we looked at John 1. In the beginning was the Word, referring to Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, because Jesus has always existed. He is eternal. What do we do as we try to grasp? How do we respond to to this eternal, glorious nature of Jesus and yet see him in the Gospels, the one who was the servant of all? How, how do we put that together? Because we, that's one of the reasons why we, we need to value the accounts of, 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 of Christmas in Matthew and Luke. Because we need to understand how he humbled himself and became a servant and took upon himself the nature of, of us. And so we read the beloved story of Mary and Joseph and making the trip from Nazareth. You have to go register Where? Their ancestral background was Bethlehem, so that's how they got there. Mary's in her ninth month, no place to stay. So instead of even having the the, the primitive inn room by our standards, they get a place meant for animals. And that's where Jesus is born. We imagine them grumbling, surely, Lord, there must be a better place We don't know that they grumbled. We just think that because we would have. I've I've grumbled when arriving at a motel that should have been updated a few years ago. And it had a toilet that ran all night. But I had a bed, I had sheets, I had heat. He had a stable. Everything about Jesus' coming is marked by his humility. In fact, really, it would have to be like humiliation. When you think of who he is and where he came from. So what do we do with the dissonance, the clash between what he deserved, the glory he deserved as king, and the humility he lived as a man? What do we do with that? I think we take notes and say, if he was that and served like this, I'm here, and sometimes I'm asked to serve, you know, like, here. Am I willing to be humble? And do I know how to really worship him? Worship Christ the King, the eternal God who came in true humility. So how's your worship life? You know, it's cliche how we say, oh, we're so busy, have no time. 
I'm going to spend three hours this evening watching a Packer game. How dare I say I have no time for worship? Verse 6-8 tells us how, in a sense, he showed you, O man, what is good, what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. That's a remarkable phrase. Walk humbly, understanding he's the king, the ruler, the authority. And so the only way you could relate to him is in humility. But the amazing thing is, we're supposed to walk with him. You always are beside someone you walk with. You don't walk under somebody. And so the one who is above all is the one who invites us to walk alongside him. He's not the He's not the CEO, you know, five levels above. He's the king of kings beside us. And so we need to always hold intention that he is both authority, that I dare not be defending something he is speaking to me about, but while at the same time he has this full authority and I cannot resist, I must appreciate that he is personal. It's a relationship. And he walks with me. I trust that as we capture the nature of our Savior, we can appreciate his authority and even his friendship. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, just ask you to help us to reassess the way we see you, that you are, you are king of all, and we must bow in complete, humble, servitude to to you and yet you walk beside us you long for a personal relationship with us and you call us to humble ourselves in following your example and you showed us the incredible step down that you took to do what you could for us make us those who serve you and serve others in obedience, in submission, and in complete appreciation for what you have done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.